you know, let me, let me say it a nice way. If I told you that home prices were going to return back to late 2020 levels, people say, okay, that, that seems all right. I mean, you know, that's, that's not that long ago. We had some crazy price appreciation. But if I told you that was a 15% in correction in home prices, you'd call that Armageddon. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. <laughs> Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media. And today I'm having a conversation with a real estate entrepreneur and researcher and leader that I've admired for years and have been following the progress of the business that that he has built and the the research and insights that he has brought to executives across the housing ecosystem. Today we have John Burns, CEO of John Burns Real Estate Consulting. And we get the opportunity to dive into the business that is John Burns Real Estate Consulting, how he got started, the clients that John and his team are serving, and some of the research and consulting work that's actually driving change and driving smarter decision making in the housing ecosystem. We also go into some of the economic insights that John and his team are advising home building and other housing market participants on to prepare their businesses to to excel through this upcoming cycle, the cycle that we're we're all navigating and operating through today. I hope all of you enjoy this conversation with John Burns. And if you find value in the show, please visit iTunes or or Apple Podcasts and give the show a rating um, and a comment. Uh, we Love the feedback, and we use it to drive the future of the Housing News Podcast. Thank you all for your engagement and time. I hope you enjoy this episode with Mr. John Burns. And now a quick message from our Housing News sponsor, Radiant Title Services. Blockchain is changing the future of homeownership because it creates online documentation of title and closing transactions that can be seen by all parties. Blockchain facilitates quick title transfers, gives you more security, is more efficient, and offers home buyers and agents a more streamlined process. To see how Title Genius by Radian positions you to close more quickly, visit mytitlegenius.com. And if you're a real estate agent, there's a link right on the landing page with specific knowledge for you. John, thanks so much for for joining us today for the the housing news podcast, um, I think I mentioned to you pre-show that I am in in admiration and and fascination with the the business you have built. That is John Burns Real Estate Consulting. I'd love to kind of start the conversation with a little bit of your your origin story in real estate consulting and how the the business that bears your name c- came to be over the years. Yeah, well, I. I- Truthfully, I, I hate the fact that my name's on the door. When I started it, I was a one-person company, and I didn't know where I was headed. So <laughs> there are not a lot of names available. I uh, after I graduated from grad school, I'd already had my CPA, and I went to go work for one of the at the time Big Eight, now they're Big Four consulting firms. And um, I'm there three months. They reorganized by industry. My boss picks real estate, so I end up in real estate in 1989. So um, I did eight years. Uh, there, I learned a lot, uh, particularly from the commercial real estate folks. And we did a fair amount of residential too, but the residential industry, in my opinion, was just not nearly as sophisticated as the commercial real estate industry. And that's not really a knock on residential because commercial buildings are the exact same building year in and year out. It's a little bit easier to understand. Um, 
housing's a lot more difficult. So I, I just saw an opportunity to pull together some research like the commercial real estate guys do on what's going on in the market and how do the cycles work and because the residential companies didn't have that in-house. And that's what's ended up happening here for now. This is our 21st year and uh, we've diversified into building products and single family rental and we've got a lot of the disruptors and just any, anybody who wants to know what's going on in housing uh, can look to us to try to figure it out for them. And our whole agenda is just to get it right. Otherwise, our, our brand is damaged. <laughs> so that's uh, that's where we come from. Were the early clients primarily developers or brokers or owner operators? Like what, what did the profile look like that in, in the early days? It was home builders and land developers. So I, I was focused okay. on the for sale industry and particularly the new home piece of it, which cycles really hard. And um, so, so that that's where I started. So when we think about when I think about like the business I'm building at HW Media, I'm I'm attracted to industries that have a like a high regulatory or or cyclical component, which you you know you think, talk to a lot of like investors and operators, like the cyclical component is uh, is unattractive. But I see the need for information being the greatest in in verticals that do have a re- high regulatory or cyclical component, which housing like definitely like clears both of those bars. How does the value of your consulting services and research kind of change at different points in a in a cycle? And do you find that your clients like need you most in periods like we're in today where there's more uncertainty out there? Yeah, I, I joke that our business does not do well when the industry is boring. So when <laughs> you know home prices are going up three or four percent a year and everything's flat, people don't care. Uh, it's when it's booming and it's when it's busting is that our business does really well. So you know, last the spring of 2020, we didn't do very well because everyone just hit pause. Uh, but since then, it's been on fire and it looks like it's uh, starting to turn or ha- has turned already in a lot of markets right now. So we're, we're fortunate we're doing pretty well. Is it like the being been, being in the market for for two decades? What's gives your clients the confidence to you know continue spending into research and intelligence even in in kind of bust periods or like what, what like do they are they smart enough to know that this is the period of time where they have to understand the, the economic drivers and the competitive intelligence? Like has that been a, a sales conversation that you've had to muscle your way through over the years? Um, I, I think they're all smart enough to know that this is a cyclical yeah. industry, so they need to pay attention to it. But what uh, the industry, my business has changed a lot, though. When I started it, there was not a lot of information available, so we had to go find it for people. Now there's just too damn much information. I'm drinking from yeah. a fire hose. Can you synthesize it for me? And that's one of the reasons why our staff has grown so much over the years is there's, there's so much data to pay attention to, um, which... I, I think the industry is making uh, far better decisions and far smarter decisions. I, I think, frankly, they've positioned themselves for a correction, most of them, uh, because of how much data is out there and how they were able to understand it. Like la- last cycle, there was not a lot of data on subprime mortgages, like none. <laughs> uh, and so people weren't paying attention to it, and particularly on Wall Street with the CDOs and CLOs and all that stuff that was going on. That was brand new and very few knew about it. 
Um, this cycle, I don't think you can get away with any secrets anymore. That's interesting that like you, you mentioned CDOs and lack of knowledge around the mortgage space, knowing that your clientele is more so built on the, the developer side. Has that been a, a common thread in your work of industry participants trying to better understand the verticals that they're, that they're like counterparts operate in? So like we know that mortgage drives home building to a very large degree. Is that relationship something that an area you've been able to provide value? Uh, well, that's exactly what we're doing. So, so okay. we've diversified all across the landscape and we have, uh, we have three in-person conferences per year, but we put everybody in a room together and frankly, they, they didn't know each other. Like the home builders did not know the mortgage folks. Uh, the, the home builders did not know the building products companies. How, how, I mean, building products companies were selling a billion dollars a year of building products and not knowing what their customer was because there's all these distributors and things in, in the middle. And then, you know, the economy and everything else. And then we have a lot of private equity funds and quite a few hedge funds, actually, that trade securities too. And everybody is seeing the market a little bit differently. So we just put everybody together in a room, have a bunch of speakers and a bunch of roundtables and let everybody learn from each other. And that's what I think has been our differentiator as opposed to a mortgage conference, which is all mortgages and a home building conference, which is all home building. This is the whole ecosystem. But we really don't have a lot of the, the service providers like Title and those folks um, yet. And I haven't figured out how to crack that code. Hey, what we've seen in like our the real estate and uh, mortgage vertical is so much crossover of mortgage lenders starting Title arms and real estate brokerages starting Title and in mortgage arms. It seems like the what was previously siloed off services or subsectors is like coming together in a in a much more meaningful way. Is that a trend that, that you're seeing in, in your research and with your client base? Um, big time. But, but before I answer that, let me ask you a question since you're a regulation expert. Were, were, weren't those required to be segregated at some point? You couldn't, if you're a, a selling homes, you couldn't push someone into a title or push someone to a mortgage company, but it seems like now you can. Yeah, it definitely seems like that. Um, there, there is a there's some smart lawyers out there who figured out their way uh, around business structure and um, and sales and marketing practices to avoid those becoming RESPA violations. But like, rest for sure, if you hang out with enough loan officers, they'll point fingers every day that that builders should not be offering mortgages. But there might be a little self interest in that uh, in that push. Well, the builders now have their own mortgage companies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I remember a time when they were paying millions of dollars in fines. Well, and anyway, it, se it seems like the whole world and all these disruptive business models are really shooting for the real estate commission. <laughs> that that, I and mean, whether you're an iBuyer, I mean, it's like, or uh, or you're a broker now, you need to have iBuying services, and you need to have title. In fact, some of the iBuyers, like title and mortgage, is going to be how they eventually turn profitable. Yet. It, well, yet you've seen like commissions haven't really gone down very much at all. And real estate agents actually have been getting hired and getting a higher percentage of the commission, not a lower. So I'm, I'm waiting for this all to settle out at some point. It's going to be fascinating. Well, it's fascinating that people are going after the real estate commission, but that is a revenue category that the real estate brokers haven't even been able to really tap their way into. And we just had our, our Real Trends Gathering of Eagles event in Colorado Springs. And one of the, the themes that came up consistently was that real estate broker owners uh, were, were actually not getting any margin off of like actual 
commission or their their splits, most of the the profitability, the margin was coming from core services and title, mortgage, and insurance. And that topic just kept coming up again and again and again. You have a bunch of real estate broker owners who are there not to really figure out how they grow their, the number of sides, but how they cross-sell insurance, mortgage, and title into this base and actually profit off of the real estate commission because so much is going to the teams and the agents today. Right. Uh, and that's that's because everybody's trying to build up a big real estate agency as really the gateway to the consumer. Yep, ab- absolutely. So let's, John, let's let's jump into like the market that we are are in today. And I, you know, started the conversation off saying I, I talked to to Rick about two and a half months ago, and I, I went back. We talked on April sixth, which I think was the day that mortgage interest rates like started to edge toward five percent and eclipse past five percent. And um, there's been so much commentary out there that five percent is and was a, a major psychological benchmark. And once you surpass 5%, we start to see a lack of confidence from builders and mortgage lenders and real estate professionals, and probably most importantly, con- consumers. How has the rate movement of the last three months impacted the housing market from your vantage point? Well, you know, all of, all of this started at the beginning of the spring selling season. So it was not really a super immediate impact. I mean, what you had was you had de- demand way up here and supply way down here. <laughs> and, and rising mortgage rates tampered demand substantially, but supply didn't come up at all. And we got through the spring selling season for the most part, just fine. What we're seeing now is it's, um, you know, mortgage rates impact everyone. So every market has slowed a bit, but it's very, very, very different by market. And all the headlines and the Twitter and all that sort of stuff is pointing out the markets that are getting hurt bad, which are markets that are very dependent on the tech growth, particularly migrating out of Silicon Valley. And uh, some that have been very investor havens, some of those are the same markets. So you look at the Boise's and the Austin's and the Phoenix's and things are looking pretty rough. You go down to uh, even an Orlando or a Charlotte, not so bad. You go to the biggest markets in the country, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, urban parts of Chicago. It, it's uh, a normal spring. Um, and I mean, maybe that's overstating it a little bit, but uh, we have not seen a surge in listings that have come up a bit. And instead of 10 people building up, bidding on a home, there's two, but you only need one. <laughs> so things are doing okay. Just another reminder that we don't have a, a national housing market. We have a, right. a collection of, um, how many MSAs are there? <laughs> we, five, five. Well, there? Well, you get out into micro Paulton areas, there's 500 or yeah. something like that. But, but yeah. it's even though we don't have a national housing market, we do have a housing industry that is highly influenced, if not dominated by a collection of national players in the home building space and the mortgage space and the the real estate brokerage space. I actually, I was surprised to hear you say Charlotte wasn't hit that bad because I thought like there was research that said Charlotte had like one of the highest concentrations of um, investors in like the, the build Durant and SFR space. So like, how do you navigate a market that might not have been predictable? Yeah, well, I think Charlotte's going to get hit. It just ha- hasn't really okay. yet. The investors really haven't pulled out. That that's a unique market where the investors there are very Wall Street oriented, and they're still going. Um, you know, the rest of the investor markets are not as Wall Street or 
oriented. Yeah. So how so how do national players like your your national home builders and national mortgage lenders oh, yeah. successfully navigate a market where it seems like they have to make dramatically different decisions in in different parts of the country? Okay. Well, you just teed up a great question for me to sell our services. So, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we do a 70 plus page report along with an online dashboard on every metro area in the country and do a write up on it every single month. We have a very large consulting business that did more than 800, mostly feasibility studies last year, but some, some strategic studies and offices all over the country. So we're paying attention to what's going on in every market. And so we're we're helping them allocate that capital. And that's exactly how they look at it. Or like, does Phoenix need more money right now or Atlanta or Charlotte or Seattle or Boise? That, that's how you navigate the market. But it seems like some of the cities who are, that are having strength aren't the cities that have uh, you know, been the focus from a, a home building or population growth or like uh, perspective. So like two years ago, New York City was quote unquote dead and uh and never coming back. Everybody was leaving. I think Chicago has also had some yeah, some serious population bleed over over the last decade. So it's interesting to hear about markets that um in very recent history people thought the story was going to go much more negative, but it has been positive. We know that it takes home builders I mean, uh, you know better than me, but like it's it's what is it five to seven years to like acquire the land, get it, get um, building permits, like pl- plot it out, actually start construction, and then like sell a house. Like, is do your feasibility studies kind of take into account that the market in five to seven years or whatever the time frame is could be very different um, from an investment perspective? Yeah, so that's I mean we we figure out where the market is today, and then we we have a whole bunch of demand supply indicators and risk indices on which markets are are risky and which aren't. You know, and going back the last several years, it is the growth markets in the in the Sun Belt that you were talking about, where everybody was moving pre pandemic. Then it exacerbated even more during the pandemic, and there's so much demand in those markets. Uh, supply couldn't keep up with it, even without a pandemic. Supply in 2019 they couldn't keep up with it. Then you throw in all the uh, difficulties in getting a house built; they really couldn't keep up. And you know, in a lot of those markets, home prices are up 35, 40 percent in two years. Clearly, that's not sustainable. Uh, those are also the markets where the home builders focused, they tend to be pro-growth economies where you can get your entitlements and and build unlike some of the other markets. And because of that, they're the largest new home markets in the country. And I believe if if the Fed tips us into a recession, for this industry, it means job losses rather than negative real GDP. I think the job market's more important. Um, that's where you're going to see some distress in the housing market because a brand new home with nobody in it needs to get sold by the business that owns it. And that's where we're seeing discounting already, frankly. Even without a lot of finished homes, they're discounting on homes that aren't yet finished because they see the consumer, that's what it takes to get the household. So I think one of the bigger debates in housing right now is, is what a pullback looks like and what, like you, you talk about discounts on new home prices. And there's also been a lot of research and headlines on price reductions in, in the existing home market. What do you think, 
we have in store for for home prices. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I I know I shouldn't ask the question this way, but I was going to say at a national level, because I know the answer is going to be it's very different by market. But uh, I think there's a, a consumer point of view that like we there there might be an opportunity like 2008 to 2010 to buy homes at a discount. And there's an industry professional point of view that we're, what we're actually talking about here is reduction in home price appreciation, not actual values. How do you look at that debate? Yeah, I, I think that's an optimistic view. You know, I, let me let me say it a nice way. If I told you that home prices were going to return back to late 2020 levels, people say, okay, that that seems all right. I mean, the, you know, that's that's not that long ago. We had some crazy price appreciation. But if I told you that was a 15% in correction in home prices, you'd call that Armageddon. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. <laughs> so um, I think what's going to happen in the resale market is uh, unless they tip the economy into a major recession, we're not going to see a lot of distressed supply come to market. What you will see and we are seeing is, is people that are really moving that have to sell their home and are willing to take a $250,000 profit instead of a $300,000 profit because they're ready to move. Those are the type of price reductions you're seeing right now. Uh, And you're not seeing it all across the country either because there is usually a couple bidders on every house anyway. And uh, I think that's what plays out in the resale market. In sub-markets that have a lot of new home construction, though, that you're going to see a lot of supply because those are brand new homes with uh, not occupied by anybody and the public traded home builders are different this time. And um, you can look at their balance sheets and see it for yourself. Their, their debt levels are far lower than ever before. They went to the, this is what I mean by getting ready for this. They went to the bond market over the last few years, borrowed money at a 4 or 5% or 6% interest rate. It doesn't mature for years they already have the cash on their balance sheet to pay off the first few bonds that mature in, in entirety if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they're going to build up their cash balances because they're going to stop buying land. These are companies that are going to power through. And in, in prior cycles, a lot of them didn't make it. In this cycle, I think most of them, not all of them, of course, but I think most of them are very well equipped for what is coming their way and very able to drop price and handle it just fine. So the rhetoric in the mortgage ecosystem is that the the cycle is the time to, to kind of shake out the the weaker players, whether we're talking about loan originators or or mortgage IMBs that that don't have the balance sheet and grab market share and grow. Is there that does that same sentiment shake through to the executive ranks of the the whole home building space, or have the balance sheets been fortified more so? for a survival play versus a like, hey, I'm going to come out bigger, stronger, and more dominant on the other side? I think every company that made it through the last cycle, uh, first of all, they made it through the last cycle. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And now they have a stronger balance sheet than they did in the last cycle. And what is very unique, and we've been talking about this whole time, is there were very few new home builders who started up this cycle. Mm-hmm. So th- those would be the weaker players that you might be concerned that would be over levered. Uh, the banks have been insanely disciplined, not lending them a lot of money. So I, I think the thesis is correct. I just don't think there's that many companies that are that weak. There's, there's going to be some, but nothing like last time. Interesting. So you said that one of the ways that some of the home builders will 
continue to fortify their balance sheets is by halting land purchases. What does that do to the next stage of the the home building cycle? Like how far does that, that set us back on like necessary levels of new home inventory coming to market in the, in the late 2020s? Um, Well, that's a good question. So, So one interesting dynamic, this cycle is that very, little money has been going into land entitlement and development. And um, because that's where the most risk is. And even the money that went in this cycle didn't do that well. They made money, but given the risk, they were like, you know, it's just, it, you know, it used to be easy to get things entitled in Texas. Now it's not even easy to get things entitled in Texas. So it's land development is a very difficult business. Um, So we already have a, I'll call a shortage of entitled lots um, because there's not been a big focus on that. Uh, I mean, we have more than we did two years ago. And um, the builders have been uh, doing it for their own account um, because nobody else is, is doing it. And um, they've got, most of them have enough land already owned, or I should say controlled, because they've been buying a lot of these lots through uh, options that they could walk from if the market corrects. And uh, so they have what they need for the next two or three years. Your point is that I said there's been very little money going into land development. If we go into recession, there's going to be no money going into land development. And then we'll come back out of this with uh, a continued lot shortage. That's probably the right way to look at this. And that's the one of the most interesting parts about housing is like how interconnected and and complicated the, the industry is. And we... A lot of our work at Housing Wire and the work of our one of our analysts, uh, Logan Motoshami, has been demographic focused. And Logan's view for years has been we had this extremely strong wave of folks approaching the age of first time home ownership, which has been around 32, um, peaking out from 2020 to 2024. And if we continue through a market where inventory is constrained. Uh, and then go into the second half of this decade where new home supply, especially new home supply that addresses the needs of first time home buyers is not available. We continue in a dynamic where there's a lot of upward pressure on on home prices, which could further the the rapid home price appreciation market even if we're in a period of job loss or, or economic um, uh, headwinds. Uh, <laughs> how do you think about that, that line of thinking? Well, we wrote a book on this in 2016. and it, we, we, Oh, I got to read. I did not read that. Oh, I'd love to. Love yeah, to it's, um, it's called Big Shifts Ahead. Okay. And um, I mean, we, there, there's been a lot of misinformation on the supply, a lot. So, so first of all, what, what, you're referring to is there, there was a peak in birth around 89 to 93, 1989 to 93. And those people are of home buying age right now. But if you, you study the numbers, the number of adults in America overall is growing more slowly than ever before. And that was perfectly predictable. Probably more importantly is the number of adults of employment age, kind of 20 to 64, is growing even more slowly than that because baby boomers are hitting their retirement years. Um, And a lot of very simplistic analysis on the supply dynamic ignored that. 
and also ignored the fact that we completely overbuilt the market in the early 2000s, and it took years for that to correct. So when we published the book, we said over a 10-year period, we need about 1.37 million homes built per year, which was really low by comparison, and we were pretty widely criticized. The first five years, we averaged 1.35 million. <laughs> so it was, maybe we got lucky, but it was almost a bullseye. Uh, but we did, we started being oversupplied. Then we think we cleared the oversupply issue around 2019, and we've been undersupplied since then. So I'm giving you a long answer here, but we, we think we're about undersupplied by about 1.7 million homes right now. Most of that created in the last two years. But that thesis also means at what price and at what rent, because if you raise the prices and rents to the moon, some of those households aren't going to form. And right now we have an affordability problem in the rental market and in the new home market. And um, people are resting on this undersupply laurel like, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to help that we're undersupplied. But, you know, standard demand supply curve is that prices and rents <laughs> uh, need, need to be where people can afford them. And I think we're going to see a bit of a correction here. In fact, Jay Powell even said on June 15th, he said, you know, the, the housing market is, quote unquote, due for a reset. So, so the chairman of the Fed wants to see this happen and he may get his wish. I mean, and his lever that he's been tinkering with has been interest rates. So, like, are there any other levers that that Powell has to to pull yeah. that could actually kind of bring? I mean, it, you know, in his, from his vantage point, bring equilibrium to the market. Well, that's the big lever. But l let me tell you what's unique this time. So, prior to the Great Financial Crisis, the Fed had never bought mortgage-backed securities. They didn't own any of them. To get and to come in and rescue the industry, they ended up buying all the mortgages, basically forcing mortgage rates down. I mean, mortgage rates are supposed to be above inflation, right? <laughs> They're not. You look at some of these home builders I'm talking about right now, they mm -hmm. were borrowing money at five. Now they would have to, I mean, their bonds, those same bonds are trading at a 10. Um, yeah, mortgage rates were complaining are at a five, and it's because the Fed owns about a quarter of the mortgages in the country. Um, so I guess... I'm telling you, they're playing with the long end of the curve where they never did that before. And they're directly, they were goosing the economy by keeping mortgage rates low in 2017, 2018, 2019. And we kept pointing out like, why are you doing this? Because they were trying to get the economy to grow a little faster. I think it was almost impossible to get the economy to grow faster because of the demographics we just discussed. Um, and now they're like, well, the, how am I going to cool off the economy? How am I going to do that? I'm going to start, I'm going to stop buying mortgages and potentially, although they haven't said this, they may need to sell some mortgages, which could cause rates to go up a lot. And I think that's what price got priced in when rates fell to, went to six. I think that concerned them a little bit, so they pulled them back down to five and a half. But the, in, in my view, and I, and I can't get a lot of mortgage experts to agree with me on this, but it just makes common sense to me that the Fed is controlling mortgage rates, controlling them. So... I used to not pay that much attention to the Fed. Now I pay a hell of a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean the mortgage market's definitely reacting to every every Powell comment, and um, the the rate experts that that I have the the benefit of talking to, I mean, ha have a view that all of twenty twenty two guidance has been priced in, and the downward movement we saw in the last thirty days um, has you know kind of been in response to. Uh, anticipated recession and that might kind of 
um, handcuff the Fed's ability to raise as fast as they are um, they're signaling. And even though we did see a, a 100 basis point signal, I think last week, um, it seems like the mortgage industry to an extent is doubting that uh, a full 100 is in the in the cards. Right. I mean, the, the, it's what the Fed says um, that matters, not necessarily what they do. But in order, in order for what they say to be credible, they have to follow it up later. So that, that's exactly the game that they're playing. And um, that's what moves mortgage rates is what the Fed says. So are you seeing your home building clients start to, I mean, are they paying very close attention to, to Fed commentary right now to, to drive their um, sentiment on, on continuing their investments and starting and continuing new communities? Oh yeah. I mean, the, the discussion's all about mortgage rates. Uh, you know, none of them know where they're headed and, and, and I don't really either. Although you, you can look into the futures markets for the 10 year treasury, mm-hmm. uh, which is a proxy for mortgage rates. And the futures markets haven't been very accurate, <laughs> but they, their focus mostly is uh, I'm just going to do what it takes to sell homes. And if I don't like that and if I don't want to drop price and I compete with somebody who is going to drop price, I'm going to have to drop price anyway. So that, you know, their, their sentiment is pretty tough Although I will say their balance sheets are so damn strong. When you get to know them, like, yeah, this is going to be a a really tough year or two or three. Thank God I prepared for it. And now we're going to take a really quick break for this week's edition of the Mortgage Minute brought to you by Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions. The market today is making it difficult for originators to keep their pipeline strong. However, it is possible for non-QM to help. This is Stephen Winokur, Chief Marketing Officer with Angel Oak, with today's Non-QM Minute. Here's a quick tip to help you win using Non-QM this year. Stay top of mind with social media. Make sure your referral network clearly knows which underserved borrowers you can help so they think of you first. Market that you have access to Non-QM programs on a weekly basis. Post about recent deals you have saved using Non-QM or about how non-QM can save deals when traditional financing won't work and that you are the go-to for saving them. Don't forget those hashtags. Win with non-QM. And that's today's non-QM Minute. So, John, when I had Rick on the show back in April, the the kind of precipice for that was the release of the most recent John Burns Home Builder Sentiment Report. Um, if I understand correctly, you've recently released the next version of that sentiment report. Can you give us some high level takeaways uh, of what the other housing market participants should understand about the current sentiment of home builders? Yeah. So you're talking about our, our builder survey, which we survey about 20 percent of all the new homes sold at the local level every month. Uh, inventory is still really low. Uh, so there's not a lot of unsold homes. The sales rate per community fell to 2.3, which actually is a normal, if you look at the last decade, 2.3 sales per month per community is a normal month for June. They were doing north of three, so it's come off a bit, but the backlog has disappeared and the the traffic showing up to buy homes has gotten really low. 
And that's what's got them concerned. And we're heading into the slow part of the year for sales anyway. So the industry is expecting a tough next six months. One of the largest, and this is public information, so I'll share who it is, but Lennar got on their call in June, their quarterly earnings calls, which, which by the way, if, if you want great color, <laughs> listen to some of these calls or read them. And they said, you know, the market continues to slow and we're going to do what it takes to keep selling homes, implying that if that's dropping price or offering incentives, that's what we're going to do on a community by community basis. And, and that's what the home builders are going to do. It seems like across the housing industry, there's metrics that are returning to normal and fr- from like peak highs. So right. in the the real the, home, the existing home sales market, a healthy percent of homes that have had a price adjustment is about 30%. Um, I mean, we've been at zero for a long time or close to zero for a long time. And now we're kind of flirting into the twenties and into the thirties. And even though we're returning to normal, it feels like a a very tough dynamic and mortgage lending. If you look at the 30 year history from Freddie Mac on interest rates, we're still, um, very close to, to kind of all time lows in, in mortgage rates, even though it feels extremely high as rates are twice as high as they were six months ago. And like, there's a, there's a view that like, there might be a little like market overreaction of going from a, a period where, Hey, everything was, was easy peasy. Um, all the metrics were, um, up and up into the right and at all time highs. And we're kind of returning to normalization. Uh, do you think that like there's that same dynamic in in kind of home builder sentiment as like you talk about new home communities going or like I think you said they're about two point three per month right now and that's like kind of close to close to normal? Uh, no, there there is all of that, but frankly, all that commentary and I'm sure you too comes out of the people who just don't who are trying to make something look good that's not. So yeah, mortgage rates are normally five and a half. Yeah, but they're not normally 50% of people's income. You know, um, Sales are 2.3 per month. That's normal. Yeah, but we know where they're going. They're going down. So I, I, I think there are some people in the industry that tend to be the optimists who keep pointing out this return to normal, and they're right. Uh, the forward-looking people see something much worse than that, though, Clayton. And that, that's, I think the industry has far more forward-looking people now than ever before. Okay, so I, I take your tone to read that you're one of the forward-looking people that has a, a, <laughs> <try to be. laughs> a slightly more uh, pessimistic view of what what, what the market right. holds for us in in the next few years. So let's can we can we kind of go into how you're advising clients into this period of of pessimism or, or challenge? And we we got some background on on how the stronger players in the home building market have prepared themselves and built balance sheets to survive where they are today. Now, how are they preparing for 2023 and 2024? And, and are you providing any forecasts when you think they should kind of go from defensive mode to, to ready to play offense again? Yeah, no, we've been telling them, well, on our risk indices, we've been citing caution there, frankly, for a couple of years going back to 2019. So that things have been getting more and more risky over time. So, But what's interesting on that, Clayton, is actually when the market gets frothy, the most money gets made. So, so that, and that, that's what's been happening. And we've just been telling people, stick it in the bank. And that's what they've been doing. And they've been buying land with option agreements, which allows them only to put up 20% or less of the land price 
um, so they can get out of it if if they want. And right now we're saying, um, you know, you got to price the home to sell, or and uh, it's got to be a payment somebody can afford, and that's the realistic um, situation. If you're across from three other desperate sellers, and I'll call somebody with empty vacant homes a desperate seller, that's going to be a tough call. If you're in a resale market where there's not a lot on the market, you just need to be priced right. And and if you've been getting away with a 20% premium for your brand new house, for example, but you're really the norm is 10 to 15, you need to be down to the 10 to 15 range. And that's how we're that's how we're advising people to play this. Do those do you, like to take a more conservative strategy and continuing to bring inventory to market? Do you anticipate that builders will come kind of down market at all in the in the homes that they build to kind of reduce risk profile or or kind of reduce the luxury finishes for a more like mid market entry point? Like, are are there any kind of like strategic changes that you think will play out in a big way with the types of homes that are being built by certain builders? Yeah, we, we just wrote a piece on this that I reviewed yesterday. We haven't even published it to our clients yet. Uh, there, there's a lot going on there. I mean, and people aren't going to like some of this stuff, but all the smart home stuff is getting stripped out. All the uh, extras getting stripped out. Um, and I, I shouldn't always say always, because if your three competitors have everything else stripped out, um, you can do something a little bit nicer and charge 20 grand more. So it, it is kind of a community by community situation. Uh, they're really hoping the building products costs, which have gone through the roof, come back down. We, ha- we do a lot of surveying and a lot of work in building products, and we think costs are going to come down, but they're going to lag. Prices are going to come down first, and costs are going to come down later. That'll help them. Do we know if supply chain costs are coming down at all for these building supplies companies? That, that seemed to be a big theme at the National Association of Home Builders event, or at least that's what building supplies companies were pointing at. Uh, yeah, so lumber's already come down quite a bit. We, we just finished our survey of 345 um, lumber yards and, and dealers all across the country. Uh, inventory starting to build up in those facilities. So uh, that means that they're, they're not going to be charging huge premiums anymore. And it varies a little bit, like Windows, for some reason, still has a huge shortage. So that's not true on every product. But I think you're going to see costs come down. If co- So I'm kind of thinking about like the, the potential implications of a less expensive product or less like luxury or like bells and whistle product coming to market. I, I would anticipate that the average value of new home sales would come down significantly over the next two to three years. And I think there's a, a face value risk that people will think, well, new homes were selling for 500,000 in 2022 or 2021, but they're 350. Now that means home prices have come down 150 grand, but in reality, the product changed as well. Right. There, there will be some of that. The, the big product changes, frankly, are going to come in the communities that are about to get opened. Um, it, it's hard to switch gears, yeah. you know, 50 homes into a 75-unit community. Uh, and and I, I should mention that because that's the real game changer that I think your audience should watch. It's a, the, the guys that are, or the companies that are selling right now are offering incentives and kind of hiding some of the price declines, if you will. Uh, because they're trying to protect the homes and backlog and the homes they've already sold. Somebody opens a brand new community, there's nothing to protect. They're just going to go for price. 
And, and that's when you really see prices adjust in a market when a new home. This just happened out in the Ontario area where uh, a builder came out, sold nothing, dropped price 10%, and now they're selling and everybody's yelling at them. I was like, well, you were doing the same thing with incentives. So let's just get realistic here. This is uh, Ontario and California or California? California. California. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, the Riverside area. Interesting. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and, and expertise today. Uh, this is a, you know, no one likes to, you know, have the pessimistic conversation, but I think that you brought some, you know, se- serious insight and, and data points to help make our audience as informed as possible about the the environment that we're preparing to navigate. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be the pessimist, but I also don't want to be wrong. So I'm, I'm just reading the tea leaves as I see them. All right, John. Well, I hope that you and I can do this again. I've really enjoyed the conversation and, and very grateful for you. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.